Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Well, that song, which, by the way, that song is uh, Big, Big Love by Wynn Stewart, who was uh, one of the lesser known uh, members of the Bakersfield Sound Gang, the leaders being Merle Haggard and Buck Owens. But it's that's, that song, folks, means it's time for the three questions with Andy Richter, and it's a special Tables are turning episode. Whoa. As the questioner becomes the questioned. That's right. Today I am talking to Scott Aukerman, pretty much like the Hugh Hefner of podcasts. <laughs> oh, no. Please don't saddle me. <laughs> now, with listen. That. Well, then don't wear the silk robe, asshole. Okay. It's, Do you want me to listen, turn these tables around, by the folks, way? Folks, it's it, his. Yeah, he's actually. We're actually doing this. Oh, we're actually doing this in the Comedy oh. Bang Bang Earwolf uh, studio. And. Uh, I was in the bathroom and, and Scott came first and sat and he, he came and sat in his boss chair. It's not my boss chair as much as the chair that I I am a creature of habit and right. I like sitting where I sit. Right, right. And, you like and, you like to sit in a chair that only you have farted upon. <laughs> it's usually I think the seat across from the entrance so I can see what's happening. Like if anyone comes in or out. Like assassins. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the scene on musical like, assassins. Yeah, you run your cast. life pretty much like a mob boss. Right. <laughs> Always put your corner, your back in the corner so you can catch I an do eye think eye. that I heard uh, the, the concept of that when I was 18. A friend told me that. And I subconsciously now do it. At every restaurant. Really? I try to look at the- But what do you think is going to happen? I mean, Nothing. now it's- Oh, just- It's, it's just, just yeah, stuck yeah, in yeah. my head. Right, right. So I do it. I, I The other night I went to dinner with friends and I- It just happened that we all kind of entered at the time where my back was to the door and I just felt anxious. Oh, really? Yeah, I did. Wow. Yeah. Well, it sounds like uh, you've got a lot to feel guilty for. <laughs> and maybe we'll, maybe we'll trip across maybe, some maybe of I'll that. Maybe I'll try to figure out what it is. Yeah, yeah. Hi, Andy. Thank Hi. you so much for having me. You're welcome. Thank you for uh, for having me. This is, uh, you know, you you helped me uh, promote the beginning of this show of uh, by having me on your show. It and was now a, the end of this show. That's right. That, that, We're canceling it. <laughs> that blitz at the beginning propelled me to be the number one podcast in America for all of about 17 hours. Wow. Congratulations. And now I think I'm below... Something that's about you know uh, the history of flagstones. Well, you know it's not based. On, it's not based upon actual numbers. It's an algorithm based upon like they heavily favor a new podcast. Oh, really? Yeah, to propel it to the top oh. of the chart. So the the ranking, in other words, don't feel like suddenly you got less popular. It's just they want to feature new podcasts, so they tend to put the new ones up uh, higher on the chart. Oh, 
I see. Well, and I also so don't too, feel too good about I being number one, but don't feel too bad about well, being low here's, right now. Here's the thing about me. I don't, I'm not a particularly competitive person. Mm-hmm. Like I've kind of like, I've always sort of been like, hey, I don't know. You want to go for that thing? Whatever. Go ahead. I'm going to stay here. Um, but also. Conan, you want that job? All right. I'll be fine. <laughs> Just to your right. Exactly. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. This isn't supposed to be about me, but yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, but I also, uh. You know, it was really fun to have to be like, oh, wow, number one podcast. But I also have the ability now, and I think this this comes with age, that now that I'm not number one, it's all nonsense and bullshit. And it doesn't matter. Right. It's kind of like when you get nominated for an Emmy, uh, which both of us have been, but you're the only Emmy winner in the room. Mm. But then and if you don't win the Two Emmy, time. the Emmys are fucking bullshit. Right. But if you if you do win, then it's a. Finally, the li- <laughs> finally the 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 yes. recognition, and finally showbiz got something right. I would say the okay. So I've been nominated four times. I felt like I should have won the first time, but yeah. it's all bullshit. Yeah, yeah, Def- definitely because yes. what did win is sucked. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, no, no. They they were okay, but but it was for sketch show. We were at Mr. Show. We were nominated. I see. And the others. Sketch shows were pretty bad. What was the sketch show that won? Uh, Chris Rock show won, which oh, that's okay. It was okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah but, I mean, but, it's at least funny. But we, li- we all thought it was going to be the Dennis Miller thing, oh, which was yeah, just yeah. a talk show. That, yeah, yeah, that yeah. would have been bothersome. So then the next three times were for Between Two Ferns. The second time I was like, "Who gives a shit?" Yeah. Uh, and then the third time was for Barack Obama, which I was like, "Oh, we're going to win because yeah, yeah. it's Barack Obama." Right. And then the fourth time I did not expect to win at all. So, but we did. So and so you won twice. I right? won twice. Yeah. 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 Congratulations. But there are many times where, like, for Comedy Bang Bang, I thought I should have been nominated and worked really hard to get nominated and then did not. I know. So it's all very it's all, silly. And it's all based on fame. And I had a friend who was nominated last year. But they were very excited. And um, I had to call them and say, oh, you're not going to win. So, like, they trick you into thinking for that 10 seconds. Yeah. As they're reading off the other nominees, like, I might have a shot at this, which right. happened to us with Mr. Show, where we were like, we heard from the voters, because it used to be a small- A smaller group. A smaller yeah, group yeah. would vote on- Of we, just like, yeah, a, a hand-picked yeah, group like of, 20 people. of academy members, yeah. We heard from the people in there, you, no one voted for you, and yet, in those 10 seconds as they're reading off the names, you kind of go, we have a shot oh, at this. Oh, of course, of course. And, the, and you also, as time goes on- I mean, this is <laughs> – we're really being helpful to, like, uh, the smallest percentage of an audience right. that anyone's we'll ever, ever be nominated. Hey, for hey listen, people, if you're – if you're if you get nominated for an Emmy. Now, there was one year that in particular that was really infuriating to me when we were nominated for the Late Night with Conan O'Brien show, I, which is a show I was on oh, before. Oh, yes. Um, and we lost to – because we were in the same category as Eddie Izzard's – Hour. <laughs> Something he worked on all year. Yeah. And, and it was an hour. Yeah. One hour that he did over and over, whereas we did, uh, you know. Yeah, 500 47 shows weeks of shows yeah. a, a, a year, five days five, a week. Yeah, even more than five. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you you know, you only submit that one hour and then they put yeah. that one. And it just, it was infuriating. And that was kind of a turning point for me to decide, oh, I'm never going to give a shit about this again. Yeah. It's you know? hard. It's hard because- 
The only thing I care about more than the trophy, I, I will say that for a while, until I had the actual trophy, I was like, why don't I have one of these trophies? And then the minute I got it, it was like, oh, who cares? Right. Because now I have it and maybe, and who cares? I have a, but, I want, we run uh, the Writer's Guild Award one year and I mm-hmm. have the Writer's Guild trophy, which is a fucking murder weapon. Yeah, it is. They all are. Oh the my Emmy, God. I think we did a sketch about it when I wrote on the Emmys about how it is the most dangerous trophy. It's crazy. It's like, yeah, yeah four different ways to stab somebody. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're all, it all becomes something that you just think like, yeah. well, here's something for my, you know, well, my loved ones to have to deal with when once, I'm in the ground. Yeah, exactly. Once you get it, you don't care about it. The only thing I care about is, is that for Comedy Bang Bang, the TV show, it would have been a nice pointing to it of like, hey, everyone should pay attention to this thing. Sure, sure. Because I felt like the entire five years, it was so much fun and we got to do whatever we wanted. But at the same time, I also felt like no one was ever watching. Yeah, it's a vindication of just some, you know, a recognition. It's not even vindication as much as I just wanted more people to watch it. So it's like advertising. I see. You know what I mean? I see. Well, Were those the three questions? Yeah, yeah, we're done. Okay, great. No, listen, okay, so the three questions. Uh, first starts, uh, where do you come from? Where do you come from? And where <laughs> you do you get off? So really, that's, yeah. that's question 1B? What's your deal? <laughs> Out with it. That's a new show. Out with, with it. it. <laughs> just, with Andy just Richter. Go. <laughs> just go, just talk. We're so recording, just talk. <laughs> Uh, Andy, where do I come from? I grew up right here in California in the uh, wonderful county of Orange County. You weren't born here, though, right? I wasn't. I was born in uh, Savannah, Georgia, but I moved about six weeks uh, after I was born because my my father was in the military. I see. So my brother was born in New Mexico. I was born in Georgia, but then he got uh, restationed back in uh, California right after that's a that's a. A lot better story than even at that early age that Savannah could tell you were trouble and ran you out of town. <laughs> With Get that baby out of here. <laughs> so you were so Orange County is. Orange was County. Your dad, did your dad leave the military and then or he, did he? Uh, he was uh, a pilot for the National Guard. Um, so he was in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. He flew in Vietnam. Um, and then when uh, I was born in 1970, so the Vietnam War was still going on. So I think he was still in it. Yeah. Um, and then after the war, he came back out and then uh, applied to be a pilot at the uh, Los Alamitos. Uh, is it an Air Force Base? It must be National I Guard think it because is. he was in the Los National Alamitos. Guard. Los Alamitos. But I think it's the Air Force Base. Or yeah, whatever. It's not, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are, I mean, they all sort of – it's like the – Fort Pendleton also has Navy. They right, have, yeah, yes. Yeah. So he worked there the for uh, probably, I want to say, a decade. Oh, okay. Um, and where he just basically flew – uh, helicopters. The oh, cool. Time. So yeah, was it, did he just fly helicopters or helicopters and planes? He just flew helicopters. Okay. Yeah. Although I think he could fly a plane. Yeah. Although he never took me up in a plane, or he would take me up in helicopters every once. Right. In a while. Right. Just to scare you. <laughs> yeah. As a <laughs> threaten to throw me out <laughs> as a disciplinary. Yeah. Yep. Just like yeah. Just like Duterte. That's where right. Duterte got the idea. Um, so I grew up in in like the suburbs of California, Orange County, which is. Kind of a, a richer mm-hmm. uh, place, but I didn't know that because we always had like the the least uh, assuming house wherever sure. in the two houses that I grew up in. Uh, they were always the quote worst unquote yeah. houses on the block, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I kind of grew up with this. What some would say is like an idyllic. 
suburban life. I grew up right next to like a huge park, yeah. you know. Um, and I thought that in which every- town in Orange County? In Cyprus. In Cyprus. Yeah, we had two houses in Cyprus. We moved like a couple of blocks after. I see. And so, yeah, I kind of, but I thought everyone grew up like that mm-hmm. because most of like youth fiction or movies, everyone was like, Suburban looked like me, had the same kind of house as me, you know. Yeah. So every everyone, I I didn't I I, I sort of conceived that like maybe ten percent of the population maybe was down on their luck or something like that, you know. Uh-huh. And growing up in you know kind of not as well off in in a city yeah, or something yeah. like that. But my, I mean, my parents did say we were middle class, but I didn't really know what that meant. Yeah. Can I just go back to because yeah. I so. F- Few of my peers have parents that actually were are combat veterans. Really? At this point, yeah. I just don't know. I, I can't think of anybody else that had a. They're having a lot of trouble recruiting, from what I understand lately. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I. I but think- I mean, did was that something that your dad's Vietnam experience was it? A presence in your home that you knew about, or that he ever talked about, or not did really? It, did it have any complications for him? Was there any PTSD for him? Not really. In fact, we went to see a, a play because we had season tickets at the La Mirada Playhouse one year, and it was a play. I can't recall the title of it, but it was made into a movie called Jackknife, I think, with Robert De Niro, where mm-hmm. he played a, a Vietnam veteran. And the only thing I remember is, like, coming out of it, my dad going, like, geez, why does every th- movie or play that has to do with the Vietnam War have everyone be so messed up about it? Geez, just get over it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And so I never really, he didn't really seem to have any kind of yeah. uh, relationship to it at all. And it wasn't until maybe in the last... Five years or so, I, I I moved them out of Arizona where they had moved back to Orange County. Yeah. And so I like packed up a lot of their stuff and I drove them, you know. And yeah. so for an eight hour drive, I just like talked to them a lot about Vietnam, you know, uh-huh. and found out that like if not for someone for someone's gun jamming, he would be dead and like all this kind of stuff. So. Wow. But he seemed to either be in denial or. Or just kind of like, who gives a shit about yeah, the whole yeah. war? That's the past is the past. Yeah, he signed. I mean, he he signed up for it. He didn't get drafted uh-huh. um, because he he had heard that if you signed up to be before you got drafted, you could be a pilot, and he thought that was a good stepping stone to a career. I see. And his and my grandfather was a pilot as well, a helicopter pilot, a helicopter pilot. Yeah. So and uh, was your in the military? Yeah, in oh, okay. uh, World War Two. Did that sort of just get over it philosophy also apply to his, you know, parenting skills or his, yeah. you know, his sort of the, the ethos of your home? I don't think that we were ever really encouraged to talk about things all that much unless there was a problem. I see. So it wasn't like we were ever, you know, talking about our feelings or talking about what was going on. My mom Brought, my mom has a lot of guilt about stuff, and recently she brought up how we went to a – we were in a stadium. That's all I remember. We were in a football stadium for some reason when I was five, and I was sitting on her lap, and my dad – she says, your father said, ah, get him off your lap. You're going to baby him. I've just felt bad that I've babied you too much ever since then. I'm like, I don't remember. I don't care. Right. Now um, give me the whoopee. <laughs> <laughs> and change my diaper, mommy. 
So yeah, I, I, I think that we were never, and I think it's infected my life too, of just like never looking backward, always looking forward mm-hmm. uh, or, or not even being present, just always being like, yeah, 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 whatever. But like, what's next? What's yeah, next? Yeah. Um, and, and so really the only time we would ever talk about things were if I had done something wrong and then it was like, why the fuck are you, or not fuck because they're right. religious, but yes, why are yes. you such a bad person? <laughs> well, it's also, it goes along with just sort of military helicopter pilot is not dealing with anything theoretical. It's not dealing with anything other than what's in front of you, what how a system operates, and and the repetition of that system. You have the instrumentation there, and and even you know following orders in the in the war is kind of like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean the Vietnam War. So many people who were in it questioned it afterwards, and people who were against it obviously questioned it. And the all of America kind of you know that was the first war that people were like, is this really what we want to be doing? But not not him. He was just like, yep. I got ordered to go out there. I yeah. did it, and now yeah. I'm back. Well, I'm always I always am struck when you hear those recordings, those battle recordings of pilots, and like the when they, you know, it's never like the movies like I'm hit, I'm hit, I gotta get the fuck out. Yeah, of here. yeah, it's always, sort always of like, very like I got hit, I'm going down. Yeah, you know, and that's just well, you're trained to be, and it's a lot of like policemen where you're trained to de-escalate situations. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you're trained to, you know. Always have – and people make fun of airline pilots because of that voice. But you're trained to just never, you know, be calm in all situations and just never escalate a situation to that point. Yeah. Was he a non-escalator at home too? I – again, I think unless there was an issue and then it got – then it got pretty escalated. I mean like where you were out of line or where you – Yeah, exactly. Where you were – Right, done something wrong. Deni- or uh, where you're just sort of talking back, you know. Yeah, or – Defying. My them. brother and I fought a lot and so there was a lot of like, uh, all right, who who did the bad thing? Yeah. And both of us denying it and both of us getting spanked with the belt, yes, you know, yes. because neither of us would admit to it. Admit to it. You know? And when it's probably usually a shared blame of some kind. Uh, yeah. Usually it was one of us, definitely, but right. and it wasn't we, you. Is that what you're trying to say? But we would. But, well, occasionally I think it would be me. But I think the the whole point of view is like, if I'm going to get spanked, I want him to as well. <laughs> oh, <laughs> even yeah. if he didn't do it. And that's what's wrong with the world. We'll be right back. <laughs> um, how is it? Just the two of you? Just you and a brother? No, uh, I. My parents had a sister when I was ten. A daughter. A daughter. Yeah, my sister. Uh, and then my brother got married, uh, but he passed away when he was 35. Oh, wow. So, so now it's technically his ex or his widow. It's not his ex, I guess, but his widow. Uh, she's still like our sister. I see. And then my sister as well. So, it's, And are yeah. you the oldest? I am now technically the oldest. He, w- he, he was, was older oldest. than you. Yeah. I see. And did you have a good relationship with him or, I mean, beyond the normal sort of like – not Fractious really, not really. Yeah, no. They, it was it was pretty contentious all between the way. us. Yeah, and uh, and what did he end up doing for a living? He um, he worked with my father. Actually. Oh, really? So my father got out of the military and then flew helicopters privately for a while for rich people uh-huh. uh, or for a corporation. Yeah, yeah. And then um, <clears throat> he then he owned a machine shop. Where he would make parts for air uh, airplanes, mm-hmm. uh, 
uh, which went out of business. And then so then he got hired to sort of run a company that did that. So they, w- they would make the overhead compartments in airplanes. They would make uh, I remember after 9-11 him talking about the regulations, that there were two competing regulations uh, for the doors closing off uh, the cockpit. Yes. That uh, – there was a regulation about how they should be impenetrable now, but also people had to get through, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, but he, he did that and my brother worked with him. I see. And uh, was there, I mean, having the two males in the family being such a sort of straight-laced, military-tinged business for you being – Someone who, because you started acting at an early age or yeah. showing interest in it. Yeah. Was that, was that frowned upon? Was that embraced? Was it sort of looked at with a puzzlement? I think it was puzzlement. Uh, but I will say, you know, for some reason, I don't, I, and I was trying to think about this uh, earlier. For some reason, I grew up knowing that I was uh, like not. In in terms of with, uh, you know, my peers, not desirable or not cool, you know, and from a very – Explain it. I mean, seriously, explain. I mean, not that I don't – I mean, I don't know exactly what you mean by desirable and cool. By by like women will not like you Mm. and you are a nerd. Oh. Right. And I don't know. And I was trying to think of like, I don't know how. And I think maybe I was skinny. That's like all you could really say. But right. how jacked can you be at five years old? <laughs> <laughs> like, and also, how like concerned are you about opposite sex attention? Um, I mean, just Enough. in terms of status. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, you know, when you're told like, hey, you're ugly. It's very like, oh, OK, I guess I'm ugly and I'm and I'm a nerd. Uh, and everyone makes fun of you, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess also like there's probably were fights and I couldn't fight or whatever. I don't yeah. know. So anyway, so I think I grew up like kind of, you know, weak in a way, which is sort of, uh, you know, when you're growing up the son of a military person, it's kind of like, what is what is going on? Right. Why is it? Why is my son like this nerdy guy who likes comic books? And your older and- brother was not that. Not really. We, he would try. I mean, he did, though. He he liked comic books. We actually shared a lot of the common interests, and I think just personality conflicts got in the way. But it was sort of like, you know, he really loved music, but he hated New Wave because I liked it, and he liked heavy metal, you know? And yeah, now yeah. I like heavy metal, you know? It's, you know, now that we're all past that, and he's no and longer with non- us. It's all yeah. nonsense anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So... I grew up like I, I think the first thing I ever did was a church play, uh, and my parents talk about how something I said got a laugh. One of my lines got a laugh, and they say that I looked out at the crowd with like a, "Oh, really? Yeah, that that happens." Yeah. Like an audience expresses the first taste of the stuff. <laughs> so, and they said it was never the same after that. That I just wanted to act and and you know do artistic things. And what age was this? This is probably five, six, oh, wow. seven, something like that. And it, you were a very religious household, yeah? yes, yes, and went to church a lot, three times a week usually. See, I I think it's funny in in many ways 
religious families that take their kids to church a lot, they are they might make them religious or they might make them theater kids. That, and because it church always seems like the theater. opposite. Yes. Church is theater. It's just, it's they, all a they, show. And they sing songs Absolutely. and they have bands playing and there's, there's a stage yep. and an audience. I was very, I was, I, as I like to say, never encumbered with belief. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, but I was involved with our church, like in a very – it was a United Church of Christ. It was a very sort of, you know, middle-of-the-road Protestant denomination right. and still is. In fact, some of them are a Unitarian Universalist, just kind of that very squishy, hey, whatever you want. Yeah, I can't even tell you the distinctions between – all of the I used to know some Christian of them. Yeah. Well, religions. Unitarian Universalists are pretty much like God is every God, whether it's Allah or Buddha, it's all the same thing. Oh. And it's all human versions of our understanding of that. Oh. And that's all cool. That's and it, more oh, it's, progressive. Oh, it's than, fantastic. It's yeah. and and I mean, and there were that was like hundreds of years ago. There were right. really forward thinking you know, East Coast, you know, New Englanders that started this church. That's that, great. Actually. Yeah, I would have no, much preferred that to it's the- a, It's a great thing. To the anyone who doesn't believe the exact thing yeah. that we believe is going to hell. I remember I had a, because uh, probably my high school years, the defining sort of movement that affected my life in terms of like a sociological movement was- Born the musical a, hair. Born, <laughs> was born again. No, just Treat Williams. Uh, <laughs> was born again Christian stuff. Because yeah. like in our, just in our town alone, when I was a, in grade school, there was a little storefront church. And by the time I got out of high school, it was a mega church. Really? It had a How huge many? building, like hundreds of people wow. every year and or every, every Sunday. And a bunch of kids that I went to school with all of a sudden – were literally burning their albums and oh. shit like that. Like their Genesis albums. Right. Like fucking, like, yeah, okay, yeah. I get it. It's Genesis, but yeah. for Christ's They're sake. They're Styx albums yeah. because Styx is the river in Hades. All of that shit. But I, yeah. but I remember I had a, uh, we had any, we had a uh, English teacher who was a wannabe Baptist minister. And wannabe. he, and, he, and at the time too, there was this great, I think they were brothers and their their gimmick, their showbiz gimmick with it within evangelical circles was that rock and roll is the music of the devil. And you could buy their whole setup like you could buy their AV setup of playing, playing you know, the clips of yeah, all the, playing yeah. the clips backwards. And the slideshow and, yeah, my, the and I think it was album covers. I think it yeah. was uh Stairway to Heaven. Yeah. There was one the part. And he, masking. Yeah, yeah. It, it was supposedly My Sweet Satan. Yeah. And they played it Heard for us. all that. And yeah. even, but the kid, you know, and we as kids should have been, hey, fucker, this is supposed to be English class. You would do it in English? In the English class. Oh, come Twice on. a year because the kids are like, please do the, please do the rock and roll shit again. Well, I. The devil shit again. I we, like Everyone it. fucking loved it. The metalheads <laughs> were like, yeah, do it again. Talking about, well, yeah. that's the thing is, is like, I went back and systematically bought all of those albums that they warned us about because like right. I, I remember the guy coming to our church I think I think I feel like his name was Bob Beeman but I don't know but um and he showed us Dead Kennedy's Too Drunk to Fuck uh album cover and I was like ooh cool <laughs> you know <laughs> and I went out and got that and I remember people talking in the church about how like if you liked Iron Maiden their mascot was Eddie, the corpse. Right. And that was a gateway to necrophilia. That eventually, if you mm. listen to enough Iron Maiden, you would fuck mm. corpses <laughs> and find them attractive. It's is like, that a corpse in your closet? What is going on? Joey, no. 
It's also ludicrous. Yeah, no, it's ridiculous. But uh, I that that the reason I bring it up is that minister. I asked him once because I was taught. You know, I asked him about. I was. I, I kind of always had a little bit of an interest in theology because mm-hmm. even without a, uh, without believing, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting right. mechanism that the human brain does as a coping mechanism. Right. And I just like all the different brands and the way that it manifests itself. And I remember asking him once about Unitarian Universalist. And I think also there's some other church too, whether it's Presbyterian, I don't remember now. But he said like, oh, well, they're just like, no matter, you know, if you live a good life, you know, you're going to end up going to heaven. You don't have to, you like really follow any of their rules. And I just, you know, like the specific rules about your particular faith, about the Christian faith. And I'm just sort of like, well, then what's the point? If just living a good life is going to get you to heaven. And right. even at like 15, I was like, well, that seems like a pretty good point to me. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that like, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. Like why do you, like some poor guy that's, you know, is from uh, uh, an island in the Pacific, right. some guy that lives and dies and never hears about Jesus, he's going to hell because he never heard about they, Jesus? They told us, okay, so so the the way to get to heaven was you had to ask Jesus into your heart, right, and become a Christian. But once you did that— it's game over. Like you're going to heaven. So my whole point is, is like, well, then w- once you've done it, do whatever you want after mm-hmm. that. Right. And then conversely, we would go, well, what about the people who have never even heard of Jesus? And they go, Every- Jesus has made sure that everyone in their life gets the opportunity to hear inv- about Jesus. hear about Jesus and invite him into their heart at least once. And if they don't take him up on it, then they're going to hell. Right. And like, my scientific proof of that is because I say so. Yeah, exactly. I say so, children. Now shut up and move on. The more you like poke holes in the – and I and I, I actually was semi-religious, especially at like 12 and 13. I would go to Christian camp in the summer and like I said, three times a week to church and I was like wrestling with it. And I had a girlfriend when I was 13 and very like, you know, into like, Hey, should we have sex? But, and, and wrestling with it, like, God, please, you know, guide me through this, you know? Um, but and she was a church kid. No, she was not. She didn't give a shit. She was like, all that's bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) But, and, and then I was friends with the youth pastor and would hang out with them sometimes on Wednesday, a fourth night, you know, Mm -hmm. and like talking about and just discussing stuff. And just as I grew to be like 18, 19, the more I would talk to people and, and the youth pastor about all these, this stuff, I would be like, I just, none of it is making sense. The the more questions you bring up, there are no answers mm-hmm. to this stuff. So the the rules part of religion just seemed like it was all made up and stupid at, at about 19 to, to me. I see such a parallel between a dad that's like, look, just do what the book says. Just right. follow the procedure. Yeah, and, the, and a church that says, just do as you're told. Right. The, bu- the book's right there. The just book's do what there. it says. That's all you got to do. Don't question it. Yeah. It'll keep you in the air. Right. It'll keep you flying, you know. Yeah, exactly. And so then, but you really were active as a kid then in theater. You really, I mean, yeah. more so than a lot of kids. I definitely, I was I was sort of weighing if I wanted to be an artist or uh, meaning because I drew mm-hmm. or whether I wanted to do theater or just both or whatever. And right. I also did music. I was in a band in high school and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, What'd but you yeah, play? A guitar, guitar and sang, yeah. And so I, but but my whole thing back then was like, I just wanted to do anything. You know what I mean? I just wanted to be creative. So it was like I had the band. I had like a public access TV show. I was doing uh, high school plays. I was doing choir. Was that for school? 
Yeah, it was uh, my. It started out as my friend was the anchor of this show called Centurion Highlights because we were the Cypress oh, Centurion. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so he was on the debate team and he was very serious, and so he was the anchor of this program that was ostensibly to inform students. Program. Yeah, news. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And then they brought me on to do a piece on it um, about how the, and they pitched this to me. They said, what if you did a piece on how Cyprus got its name? And they had an article about how it, how it got its name. And so I wrote this piece. I was super into David Letterman. Um, and this is 1985. Mm-hmm. And, and so I wrote basically a Letterman field piece about how Cyprus got its name with a lot of jokes and a lot of like inside jokes about all the places in town. Like there right, was, right. A, there was a restaurant called Alan Maggie's and then, uh, one, just one day suddenly it was just called Maggie's and, <laughs> and so I made a big oh, that's awesome. investigative journalism part of the piece of like, what happened to Al? <laughs> um, <laughs> And oh, that's so great. it was just really, you know, and, and you, you should have interviewed Al. <laughs> we couldn't find him. down Al. So I did that. And uh, by the way, and, and I showed it at UCB once because Jen Kirkman had a had a show where she was like, bring something from Old your childhood tapes, yeah. that you were that you're embarrassed by. And I played it and she goes to me, she goes. I, I said, bring something you'd be embarrassed by, not something you would do now. <laughs> I was like, yeah, my sense of humor kind of no, has changed. It, I can see, and especially when you say Letterman, I can see you in, in such a Letterman kind of way. Like, not really, like, there's not like a superiority. There's not really but the sarcasm, a smugness to a it. Smug- but it reads to people that don't get the joke. Yes. As that fucking prick thinks he's better than me. Yes, exactly. And this... Yeah. This, not to get too sidetracked, but when I went up to theater school when I was 20 to 22, that was a big issue because it was a serious theater school where it was, you know, like a two-year – you were there all day. And I would try to do stuff like that where I – for my dance project, um, we were supposed to incorporate ballet. And so we did – me and my two friends did a – a ballet uh, about one of us was a, a dog. One of us was a, no, one of us was a cat. One of us was a bird and one of us was a worm. And we were all chasing each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, but then it went into Michael Jackson's Rock With You and we started doing modern uh, dance moves, which then ended up into a poker game, which then the song ended and everyone applauded like, okay, that's the end. And then the next song pl- pl- started to play and we just played poker until they stopped us. <laughs> Um, and <laughs> that does sound like that's you have not changed a bit. No. So I would do, or, or I did like a kind of Letterman inspired piece for for our big public project where like parents would come and stuff. Uh, and the, everyone was always confused by it. Like, why are you doing poking this? fun of how serious this all is? Yeah, yeah. And for me, I was just kind of like, what? Everything is to be made fun of, right? right like, why right. are we taking everything We're all so here seriously? to have fun. Yeah, yeah. At one point, right before I graduated, one of my teachers, I was in a band while I was there as well. And we had a big uh, concert. And I uh, basically just repeated what Bono uh, said on the the uh, Rattle and Hum on one of the songs on Rattle and Hum. And I was talking about South Africa and all this stuff in a song that like had nothing to do with it. And my teacher, like afterwards, he goes, I think I finally understand you. <laughs> and it was, that was a compliment. I was like, oh, OK. I remember in college I had a photography class and one of the things that struck me 
so much about photography when I started to, because I took pictures, but I didn't understand art photography and right. I hadn't been exposed that much to art photography. This is at University of Illinois. And well, I had a great teacher. She was really great. And one of our first uh, projects was to do a, uh, go to a photo booth, you know, the old photo mm-hmm. booths that do three or four right. shots. And Sort of make it an expression of ourselves and of our artistic identity. And was it pictures of yourself as yes, well? Yes, yes. Okay. And, and I don't remember exactly what my pictures were. But my whole point was because I had been reading so many artists talking so, so ridiculously yeah, yes. about their photo of, a you know, an egg on the street right. or something that I just wrote like two pages of self-important horseshit right. about this picture – and I, in my mind, I thought sort of like, well, this is about me. I'm a smart ass. Right. Yes. And here you go. Here's me. And, and, uh, this teacher, cause we had to show it and give a presentation and read it. And I did read the whole thing right. and people were laughing, but right. some people were made uncomfortable by it because some of the people had no sense of humor. Right. Like the guy with the giant dong who was nude in every fucking photo. <laughs> Because he had a giant dong. Where is he now? Oh, I don't know. Probably fucking. His um, dong's outgrown it. <laughs> but uh, at the end of it, the teacher just went like, uh, well, she said, uh, I understand what you're doing here. But she said, maybe before you start making fun of photography, you should learn how to do photography. And that's actually a good point. And I was like. You are a hundred percent right. I get right. it. I I got it. You know. Yeah. I got to run before I can be a smartass about a smartass critic about running. That's you know? maybe a great way to put it. I think. I think the the what happened to me was every teacher was saying like, "Stop doing this. You aren't taking this seriously. You." And they they tried to kick me out and stuff. So, but I think about that. I I totally agree with that. I just think that me and my friends were. It was a reaction. I remember my other friend who I was in a different band with, we would go see bands in coffee shops and our biggest criticism is we would leave and go, wow, they were very sincere. Yeah. You know? I, that's always been like, I've always had an allergy to that too. Like you say you too. Like people, I don't like, I've never liked you too. Right. And I, maybe their first album, like right. that was, but I've never liked them. And people would say, why don't you like them? And I would say, because they have absolutely no sense of humor about themselves. Right. Well, I loved them until the, all of the speeches during yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the rattle and hum stuff. And then that's why when they suddenly got into irony, I was like, kind of hooked back in of like, oh, okay. I like irony too. But then they stuck with irony too long. So. Yeah. Oh, okay. and, and now I'm a sincere guy. Like I'm way more into, even though, you know, I do a, uh, the podcast is very insincere and the TV show was, was very insincere. Now I'm more like about, just expressing real things. Yes. You know what I mean? That's what I, <laughs> ergo this podcast. Right. You know? I mean, I, no, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm the same way. And I have friends in, that are younger than me, you know, in their thirties or something. And I was just having a discussion with one of them the other day who is sort of an insult comic, mm-hmm. like not professionally, just in life is right. always kind of, and really, and really yeah. good at it. Right. <laughs> and I was just telling him, I, I, this is funny to me, but I don't do this anymore. Like you get old yeah. and you stop ragging on each other, as right. we used to say in Chicago, or you stop busting balls, as they say. Doing bits places. and yeah. Yeah, no, I you mean, start to just be like, okay, listen, we get it. We can all pick each other's sore spots and we and we all know the buttons. 
mm-hmm. that's the other thing. Early on, when you start to be with incisively funny people, they go. This was something I in Chicago at the Annoyance Theater. It was a it was the sport of this group called the Annoyance Theater, which is. Uh, oh, I get a sense that you're really sensitive about this one thing. Loudly make fun of it in front right. of everybody and see right. how you deal with it. Yeah. And it was sort of like there is something sort of useful about it and even sort of therapeutic about it where you're like, yeah, this thing that I do that is such a scary secret to me. Yeah, what the fuck? Let's let's I'll make fun of it, too. Let's do right. that, you know. No, but it's yeah, a- but after a while, enough's enough. Let's just be nice to each other. Yeah, it definitely – when I first started doing comedy, it it kind of was like, oh, okay, here's a place where all of this stuff makes sense. Yes. Me making fun of stuff makes sense. Yes. Um, and you're with people who all are the same kind of asshole you yes, are. Yes, exactly. Know, the same kind of smart ass. But I will say my first professional comedy writing job was on Mr. Show. Um I came into Which you got because Bob saw you in a live show. Yeah, with, the second time I did comedy. BJ, right? BJ yeah. Porter, who yeah. was your early collaborator. My early collaborator. We started doing comedy together, and the second performance that we did, Bob was and we were very nakedly kind of very influenced by them because I saw them do their show to get Mr. Show uh-huh. on stage. And I was like, this is what com- this it all clicked for me. It shows you a way to do it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we were kind of doing our inspired or impression of what they would do. Mm-hmm. But Bob happened to be there and he was like, hey, man, that was really funny. You want to write on my show? Which just never is like a Hollywood success story that never <laughs> yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. Um, but so not well, without having to blow somebody, <laughs> right? Oh no, that came. Oh really? Yeah. Oh wow. And, uh, do you also want to blow I, me? I, I, I would never think that Bob <laughs> had it in him to be that forward. <laughs> but they, it was. I went into it very much just like fuck everything. Let's make fun of everything. Let's take it down. And I will say that. Uh, I was surprised when I was there. There would be certain things that that we would do around the office, or that Bob would do around the office, and and we would be just like dying laughing, and going, "Bob, you, we got to do that on the show." And he'd go, "No, that's that's for just around the office." Yeah, yeah. Like he he really taught us to have a sort of sense of responsibility about why you're putting stuff out there that you're putting out there. Mm-hmm. That I have tried to sort of. Um, you know, I've, I've, as the years go on, I've tried to sort of incorporate that. I've tried, I've tried to be responsible about the comedy in a way, you know, uh, and, and not just be like, let's burn it all down just to mm-hmm. burn it all down. Um, and I definitely think once I got the comedy bang bang TV show at that point, I was like, you know what? I've had enough of the fuck everything kind of comedy, yeah. uh, where it's just like be as offensive as possible. I just want to do fun stuff, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so I did five years of fun stuff with that. In my recollection of that time too, because I was mostly, I was, I was, uh, you know, that sort of time in comedy history was about when I was starting on late night. Yeah, because you started in 93, 93, right? yeah. And then Mr. Show started, I started doing comedy in 95. So yeah. it's very like close. Very similar. So I, but I was not, I was not part of the LA comedy scene, right. except then when I would come out here and visit and I'd go see shows and I'd see a lot of kind of the alternative shows with people like Sarah Silverman mm-hmm. and Marilyn Rice. The Uncabaret. Yeah, Uncabaret, like all those kind of, and those same, and you know, many of those people are, you know, here now working today and it always struck me that a lot of it was the joke is that there is no joke yeah it a was, lot, there was a lot a, a lot of different people sort of comedy was that 
or the idea was that guy's doing next to nothing, but he's doing it for 10 minutes. And isn't it funny that he's up there wasting all of our time <laughs> by That's doing an interesting take nothing, you know, and I, and that was what that was always what kind of struck me about it. And people love it. People like it. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a lot of comedy that's like for that. I just feel that's out there now that I look at and I'm like, this is for younger people because yes. I don't. I'm waiting for some, I'm waiting for a reason. And the reason is like that we're just doing this thing. Can you believe we're doing this thing? It's, it's tough because there are certain things like Wonder Chosen, for instance, that I am like, wow, this is genius. Gaga about it. Yeah. yeah. I love it. And it is so, but it is so nihilistic Mm -hmm. in a way. But then I'll see something else kind of similar, and I'm like, where's the heart or where's the humanity right. to it? So well, it's there, a fine line for me. It's, I don't know. Well, it's funny. It's it's basic, It's the it's the alchemy of being funny. Yeah. How funny is it? Com- how funny compared is it? with how much of is, is is it just a fuck you? Yeah. To the audience or to to emotions or life? And somebody like me or like you that's been thinking and professionally making funny things or what things are supposed to be funny for years and years, and who really thinks about it. There's a lot of times when somebody says, well, why is that thing funny and that thing's not funny? I don't have an answer. I don't know. You you tell me. Like, why can Will Ferrell say virtually anything and it's hilarious? I don't know. And, you know, and Dennis Miller can say anything and it can say something really funny and it feels like that's not funny. Well, I've also thought about it in regards to my own career. Like when I have the TV show, people – you know, there's a certain contingent of fans. <laughs> They're not even fans. I don't know why I'm calling them that. But people who would say, like, that I'm the weakest part of the show, right? And in in my mind, I was like, I don't understand. When you say, why does anything Will Ferrell say, why is it funny? I was like, I don't get it because I'm writing all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I'm performing it. And I'm sort of playing the straight man or whatever. But I'm also, like, doing a very exaggerated comedic version of myself. Mm-hmm. Is it just like face? You know, is it is it is it purely like how expressive your face is? I don't, I, I don't know that there's any reason I, to think about it. Who knows what it is? I don't is. know if there's any reason yeah. to think about it because so I, it's just yeah. not it's not a fruitful area. Yeah. Because what are you going to do? You know, I mean, you can only be who you are and do what you do. Sometimes and, I'll look at people on TV and I'll go, their eyes are too small. Oh, I do that. You shit know what all I mean? I don't. And, I, I, and then I think like, oh, and you're so fucking perfect. Well, well, but that's my point is is like, do, to be on television, do you have to have like giant expressive eyes? I don't and, know. I, for there, people to there think are, like. Yeah, though, there is there is a comedian in particular who I know and love who I just think that guy would be so much better. I, or that person uh, would be so <laughs> much better if, if they didn't have those dead eyes. Right. Like, and it's like, what the fuck How are you talking you, about? Yeah. That person is successful, makes a living, has a family. And, right. and here you are judging their dead eyes. And when people say shit about me and mm-hmm. my physicality, I'm like, how fucking dare <laughs> right. you? Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, we're all full of shit. Yeah. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time because messes happen because hey listen remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation and you were like i'm serious if that leaks over the counter it'll be a slimy abomination by the time i get back and i was like yeah 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 of course don't worry about it i won't forget <laughs> well oh yeah that happens so start clean with clorox use clorox products as directed rinse after use if in contact with food surface life is a highway and on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 
Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my love's a-growing? Well, let's move forward to when things started to really click because you sort of, you just kind of were out there in the mix mm-hmm. and... Uh, and you wrote on Mr. Show. And I mean, at what point did you really feel like, okay, this is a career? This is a life? I kind of felt uh, I, I was very interested in comedy ever since I was 13. And my the my aforementioned girlfriend yeah. um, showed me. Want to shout her out? Uh, I do not. Okay. Uh, showed me. I'll find uh, out later and, we'll, and we'll, I'll put it in, in your voice. <laughs> her name is Tiffany. <laughs> I wish it was Tiffany. Um Showed me uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? Mm. So I got very interested in Monty Python, and I was doing speech competitions, and I, I that's where the first smart-ass stuff started, I think, was like I saw – I hated when people would do uh, what we called DI, which is dramatic interpretation. Yes. I did prose. I was on you the speech prose. team okay. too. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I did – so everyone who did DI would pick – I remember them from night monologues from Night Mother or something where basically if you if you said you were molested you won. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean. If you were like I was molested, you won. So I wrote an original prose piece that was called Dramatic Speech, which just blasted through all the tropes right. of that, but but then made jokes about them, you know. And and I was very successful. I won third in state. Oh that, wow! Right? In California, in California that's something. Yeah. yeah. So Illinois. I mean, I did okay in Illinois, but right. fuck Illinois. I mean, so I didn't on. go to nationals because I didn't win first. But yeah. it was like it was a big, you know, kind of. So I was very just interested in comedy, but I also I was in Orange County, and I thought, you know, Orange County is so close to Los Angeles, but it may as well be a million miles away yes. because there is no path. No, you know, there is no one saying like, if you do this, you will get on. Mm-mm. So I just uh, loved comedy, but never assumed I could do it. And so the the when my friend uh, told me, "Hey, I really hate the uh, pilot." and uh, plays that you write. Uh, But you're so funny. Why don't you do comedy? (laughs) Because I was writing these like serious kind of mammoth-ish kind of things. Which is a very young person thing to do. Yeah, yeah. I was super into mammoth. Every short story I ever wrote in college was like, uh, you know, the same thing that the the cliche of film school about uh, your first film class is like 60% suicide movies. Right. You know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So- I, I did comedy for the first time, and and I would say, uh, you know, I was working at waiting jobs before that, and everyone uh, would say – I would make jokes, and they would go, ha-ha, Mr. Comedian, and the, like basically saying I was not funny. Mm-hmm. But then I started doing comedy. I was like, oh, I'm a comedian now, and then suddenly people were like, oh, he's a comedian. He is funny. It was – that. <laughs> click happened yeah, yeah, with weird. them. It that's was very weird. weird. So at that point I was a professional comedian and I never really looked back at that point. So the first, after what, the when, first time I did What it. was your, your last outside job? Like what? The year? last outside job was Cafe Cordial uh, in the Valley. Ooh, la, la. So that would have been 97. Oh, okay. So I started, no, 96. I started Mr. Show in 97. Okay. Bob called me the 
uh, week my unemployment ran out. Oh, and, wow. And said said that. And he had been like saying, you got to not take another job. You got to not take another job for like two months at that oh, point. Yeah, and finally, yeah. my unemployment was out. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So it just, you know, like I really felt like I was home with it. And, um, but I didn't, I didn't really think I'd never, you know, d- worked on a TV show or whatever. So I was like, not really sure how I was going to do it. And I remember talking to Andy Kindler about how kind of nervous I was about it. And I was saying, I think I'm, I'm one of those guys who's better behind the computer and writing. So I think I'm not going to be very good in the room because, you know, I, I just, I, I need the time to craft a joke, mm-hmm. you know? And then Bob, the very first day, he had this thing where he was like, let's put the new people on the spot and sink or swim, you know? So someone read one of their sketches that they had brought in on the first day uh, from their submission packet. And he just turned right to me. He goes, what do you think? And I was like in my head going, ask one of the people who's worked here for a while, you know? But I just blurted out what I thought because I'm a very opinionated person. Mm -hmm. And he was like, yeah, very smart. Okay. Yeah. Let's do that with it. You know? And it was like, Oh, Maybe I can be good yeah. in the room, you know, and all it is is like well, God bless him for that, you know. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. Honestly, he he was one it, it it was such a great first job to have because he was so supportive of the process. Yeah. Um because it was a reaction to SNL uh in him working at SNL where where sketches would get shot down right after being in dress rehearsal. Yeah. Yeah, no, where it seemed like house intrigue was more important than the actual product. And he was about, if someone has an idea, if there's the kernel of comedy there, let's not shoot it down. Let's not make fun of it. Let's like really treat it seriously for at least an hour. You know, when people would come in with the most half-baked things and he would say, and we would talk about it for an hour. And at, at the end of the hour, you usually would find some pathway into it being a successful sketch, you know. So it was a, it was a really incredible, instructive first job to have where we were trusted with the sketches that we wrote to, to basically produce them and to be in the editing room. And it, it taught me so much uh, about making stuff that from then on – I couldn't really go back to like just staffing on a sitcom, mm-hmm. you know, and just being a cog in the machine. I, I kind of just that. had had to make the stuff myself. When you started to have this sort of artistic reinforcement and and this contentment and fulfillment in an artistic sense, did that translate into personal? Like at the same time, did you feel that this was, that this was like a a key that was unlocking something in you? It definitely did with my peers. It definitely made me feel comfortable. And, and I suddenly had, you know, a a crew, you know, of people Mm -hmm. who understood me. Um, Which is the biggest thing in the world. Yeah. When you find your, when you find your people, it's, I've talked about it on other shows. It's the biggest thing in the world. It's huge. So I, I finally, everything felt like, it clicked and I, for various reasons, I hadn't dated anyone for a few years when I started doing comedy and then suddenly I started dating again. Mm-hmm. And and so everything there was was uh, really good. But I think, you know, I'm still 27 and I'm still, uh, you know, like eight years out of the church. And so I'm still very concerned about what my parents mm. are thinking about my career. 
Um, and that that did not kind of settle for a while. That takes a while. Yeah. I, 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 I know a lot, like I say, people in their mid-30s, they still worry. I have friends that are worried about what their parents think. And yeah. I just think, give it time and you won't give a shit. Yeah. The first time I was on Mr. Show as an actor, uh, I didn't know they were going to do this, but my parents didn't have HBO. So I, my mom called me the next day and said that they had rented a hotel room, a hotel that had HBO so they could watch it. And she called to tell me that, right? And I was like, oh, wow. So what'd you think? And she goes, well, you look like you've gained weight. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, yeah. what'd you think about the show? She goes, well, we didn't like it. We turned it off after five minutes. And she called to tell me this, right? So <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, and that, the wrestling with that happened until probably like 2002. I remember that I was uh, 32 and, and, there was a big sort of epiphany for me because I had been working for about a year at that point at DreamWorks on this animated film called Shark Tale. And I remember it was along with other stuff that I was doing that was more in my wheelhouse of like, mm -hmm. you know, sarcastic or offensive comedy. But I was like, oh, wow, I'll, I love animated films and I have since I was a kid. And maybe this will be something that my parents are proud of. Yeah. And so I did it and it came out in theaters and I took them to the premiere at Man's Chinese Theater, and the lights came up, and my dad was like, well, that wasn't very good, was it? <laughs> and uh, had a lot of problems, uh, you can tell. And I was Audience, like- Audience, I'm smiling and shaking my head. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very supportive, and I appreciate it. <laughs> um, but that was, literally, that was when I said to myself, oh, I don't, I don't have to care about this. Yeah, anymore. yeah. Yeah, I can shake this tree all day and no fruit will fall. Yes. From it. Yeah. I don't have to care about and since then it's been great where like I don't even tell them about stuff. I don't think they've ever heard the podcast or anything. I don't think they would know how to download it. I just don't care. I'll put stuff out there and I don't care if they watch it. it yeah. Sometimes I'll hear about it. And the, and my my mom loved Comedy Bang Bang, keeps every episode on the oh, DVR. That's, well, that's nice. So it's it's, you know. So so they're supportive in certain ways, but it's like I also just literally know that it's not for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you were sort of a pioneer of podcast, the podcast world. The pioneer chicken of <laughs> the podcast <laughs> yeah, world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of shitty off-brand. That's crap. Yes, yes. No, you – no. Uh, but, I mean, you know, you you were in on this pretty early and and were, you were inspired by Jimmy Pardo. Is that what I read? Yeah, so Jimmy um, has been doing it 13 years. Yeah. And um, and at I, the time too, he he started subscription service before anybody really sort of had did. a notion to do that thing. Yeah, he 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 is a true pioneer. Um, but he felt like he was getting in late because Ricky Gervais had a podcast, and it was kind of like, oh, what are you just imitating Ricky Gervais? It was yeah, kind of yeah. like you know, but it was like, man, maybe we missed the boat on this thing thirteen years sure. ago. But and it was all online too. There was no downloadable anything. You, really, was you there? could, yeah. So the uh, when when I first started, and it was basically I was on Jimmy's show uh, quite often mm -hmm. and telling stories and doing and and g gaining a fan base, and mm -hmm. it, and it made me kind of go like, oh wow, you know, the, uh, like I'm maybe okay on mic, you know. Um, so ten years ago is when Comedy Bang Bang started, and um, it, it started as a radio show, and it was just a live radio show here in LA that I then podcast. And um, I quickly found out that I, I asked the station manager at one point. I said, "How many people like listen to the show while it's happening?" And he was like, 
anywhere between, I would say, 50 and 500. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, okay. And then I... I got to tell my mom. I took a look at the the download numbers of the podcast, and that was at like 2,000 every week. Yeah. And I said, well... What am I gives doing? a shit about yeah. the live radio show part of this? I'm just going to focus on the podcast. Yeah. So about a year into uh, the the show, um, I had a, a, a mutual friend of someone uh, get very interested in the show, and uh, he wanted to meet me about maybe managing the show or doing something. I said I have a manager, so I'm not really interested. But at, on my way out of the meeting, he said, "You know, if we really wanted to do something cool, we would start a." podcast network with all of your friends. And I turned around and was like, that's actually, that's an idea I'm really interested in. Yeah. Um, Because I've always liked like building something or being, you know, I have the show at UCB for 10 years and just clubhouse for everyone to play in. Yes, exactly. And creating something. And that's, and I viewed it as sort of like the UCB in a way of like, when I first started doing comedy, it was all about the venue. Mm-hmm. You you never could find a place that would let you do the comedy. Right. So I started at the comedy store, but we were in the tiny room and we got kicked out of that after mm-hmm. like six months, right? And then there was Ambar and you moved from there because that was restraint restrictive in a way yeah, too, right? Yeah, but, but it was always, you had to find a bar that was amenable to you doing comedy and it always had to be on a Monday or a Tuesday because those are the slow nights. Yeah. And then you would get kicked out of it. I had a super successful show at Pedro which is no longer with us in Los Feliz, where hundreds of people would come every week. And one day the owner came up to us and was like, you make too much, too much mess, no more shows. And it was done. And wow. they, they were, we found out the place was like a drug front later. Oh. Um, but, but that was always the problem is the And venue. sad that you missed out on the drugs? <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh. How come you never showed those to we me? We the drugs. So, so the venue was always an issue. So when the UCB came it was suddenly like a blessing yeah. to LA of, of we had a place, yeah. you know? So I kind of wanted to do something like that where it was like, I would go around to comedians and say, Hey, you're, you're doing a show at UCB for like between 50 and a hundred people every night. You could be doing a podcast for thousands mm-hmm. every week. And every comedian kind of looked at me like, oh, okay, sure thing. Yeah. Um, and even yourself, I believe I asked if you wanted to do a podcast and you're like, I'm not really into that. I, I, I up until, uh, you know, five minutes ago, I was, uh, well, it, it started out like I didn't understand what it was. I yes. am not, I am not a visionary. That's and, how and it always All was. of this kind of stuff. I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. I only understand the delivery systems yes. that I grew up with. Well, in any kind of real way, people, people thought that it was a thing that they were, that, that was, was not serious and that people would bother them to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? They don't, they didn't realize how many people worldwide were accessing these things. And so that, that became my mission to, to tell people like, no, 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 you don't understand. This is big. And, And I would look at the forecasts for the future of podcasting. And there were articles at the time about how it was going to grow two and a half times where it was in the next two years and how automakers were going to no longer be putting radios in cars. They were just going to have um, uh, MP3 lines mm-hmm. and stuff, which ended up sort of happening. Now you sort do it through, yeah. through Bluetooth, you know? Yeah. 
So I just got very interested in the business and tried to talk to people about the future of it. And some people like Paul Shear was like immediately got it and was like, yeah, 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 man. Yeah, 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 man. Um, and, and other people were like, no, I, I don't understand this and I don't Mm want to do it. And it, and it took, you know, a good five years before advertisers were even interested in it. I I was also very spoiled by the fact that I, at an early age, got on television and I was working on television. So the notion of when somebody say, I'm doing a show that's going to be on YouTube, I think, oh, start a lemonade stand. But that's Uh, where I was in my career too, is is like I'd been on television and then I hit a wall after Mr. Show where um, suddenly every, you know, I had like a pilot deal that I was going to star in and all this sort of stuff and everything got turned down and I got nose on everything. And suddenly I hit like three years in a row where nothing I wrote got made. Yeah, that's, that's, very common. And so I suddenly found podcasting and I was able to express myself and do a show every week and people would pay attention. I mean, that's, I think, why we're all doing it in a way like, you know, uh, my, one of my other shows, Are You Talking R.E.M. Re.Me, Adam Scott and I do it. And at one point, people here at Earwolf were saying like, oh, you could do it on Stitcher and have it be behind the, the paywall and we'll pay you a lot of money to do it. And we were both like, no, we want the people to hear it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, we, uh, that, so the weekly affirmation of putting out a podcast became this sort of salve to my career at a time when I felt like it was, uh, you know, in the shithole. Yeah, <laughs> essentially. yeah, yeah. And, and, and do you think that the podcast, that the success of, of the podcast and you, the podcast that you were involved in in general – was what led to the television show? Definitely. The comedy? Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it, it was you just- You had an audience. It was serendipity. There was, there was a big audience. It, it grew from that 2000 to, you know, probably in the first couple of years, 100,000 or whatever. And so uh, I found that the algorithm that people put together when they're deciding to give you something, like I had a book deal at one point, they were like, okay, you have this many Twitter followers. They, they wanted to talk about your reach. Right, right. And the podcast was something that were, that they could say, he has Meaningful. this reach and yeah. he has all these Twitter followers yeah. as well. That was also happening at this the same time. This is why it's okay to spend money on him. Right, yeah. exactly. He's a, he's a bankable person. Yes. Which I found is not a good algorithm to use because they'll, they'll give – you know, TV shows to people with a million Twitter followers and they get canceled right away. Yeah. So, but in any case, so I got a TV show from that and it, and, and it's all due to the podcast. I mean, the, yeah. the, 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 the stuff that has been the most, um, that, that has made my career has been the stuff that I just kind of was doing as a side gig for free. Yeah. So between two ferns was just a video that we put up on funny or die for free that we didn't think anything was, you know, going to happen with. And what, that, what did that just happen? Like, did you just, what was the, who, whose idea was to do that? So there was a pilot that I was making a sketch pilot and, um, Zach couldn't be a cast member because he was just too in demand. Yeah. Um, but he wanted to do a sketch for it. And so I was just talking to him. I was like, well, what do you want to do? Do you have any ideas? And he said, I've always wanted to do like a public access show called Between Two Ferns. I don't know what it is. He And he was just like, I worked at public access. And I said, oh, I did too. And we both thought that was really funny of that. Your only set dressing is just two, two ferns. ferns. Yeah. So the, all he had was a title. But I, I was talking to Michael Sarah about doing something as well. And I said, hey, would you want to do this with Zach? And he said, yeah, sure. And so we just improv it 
for this pilot. And then the pilot didn't get picked up. Yeah. And Funny or Die became a thing. I think it had only been around like three months at that point. Mm-hmm. And so, but we had friends who were like the, who were working at it. Yeah. We said, can we put this up on Funny or Die? And they said, oh, we'll make it an exclusive uh, on a Monday for you. I didn't know what that meant or whatever. Right. <laughs> and, then, and then suddenly like it got, I think a million people watched it that oh, month yeah. or something. Well, it's, I mean, it's just basically, it's, it's the purest expression of Zach Galifianakis right. that there, I mean, aside from, you know, having lunch with him, but <laughs> right. even, yeah. even that, honestly, I think, I think between two furs is more authentic than actually <laughs> yeah, exactly. spending time with Zach. Like <laughs> it's like, he's more, he's putting on an act yeah, while you're talking to him as, there, as yeah, a regular yeah. human being. Right. Right. He's, he's being human. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, one thing that occurs to me as we're talking about all this and especially with between two ferns, you know, you end up talking to the goddamn president. Yeah, it's not in order to sell the new health care policy. It's is, crazy. Is there like is there a tremendous amount of pride in all of this? Like, do you feel like it's all wow, worn off Scott? At this point. No, but I mean, I'm back I mean, to hating did, myself. Yeah, but but you, <laughs> I mean, you know, you had you had the idea. I mean, granted, other people sort of showed you the way, but you really sort of had the persistence of vision to do this thing and to commit yourself to this silliness, but this particular kind of silliness that will be delivered in a particular way. It, it is, it's, I I mean, it's one of those things where I just, I don't think it could be replicated Mm -hmm. in a way. Although I guess we tried to with the Hillary Clinton one, that one was technically more successful in terms of viewers um, and less successful in terms of achieving what we wanted to achieve with it. Right, Um, But But uh, well, the big difference is Barack Obama, the way he's funny, he can be funny out in public that way. I think that Hillary Clinton's probably funny, but she can't be funny in public. But you know what? I I was very conscientious of that. Yeah. And, And Barack Obama is the only Ferns episode we've done that was scripted uh-huh. because we were told essentially there is no way in hell you're ever going to do this. I push for it, but there's no way in hell you're ever going to do it the way you want to do it, which is Zach just throwing the questions out without them knowing, without the president knowing what the questions right. are. So that, that's the, been the only one that we scripted. But Hillary Clinton's people wanted it to be scripted because they're like, that's that's what she's used to. That's what you did with the president, right? And I in my heart of hearts, knew she would not be good doing that yeah. because she's stiff. Yeah. And most politicians are really stiff when they do this kind of stuff. And I said, I would rather not do it than have it come out and be shitty. So we just, we want to do it the way we want to do it. And they, to their credit, they said, okay, great. And I think that when you watch that video, she is funny in a way that yeah. she is not on talk shows. Absolutely. I know? agree. Because when she gets on a show like, you know, I don't know if she ever did Conan, but she did. I'm sure she did Letterman. Yeah, of course. And The Tonight Show. It just comes off as just very fake to mm-hmm. me and very much like it's gone through a filter of people writing it and people checking it. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And but it's also every human is imperfect. But she also has gone through the filter of her life. Yeah. Of being the first lady of Arkansas right. and making a crack about I'm not going to bake cookies. Right. And people and going fucking everyone- bananas because she said – I, yeah, I'm I'm a civil rights attorney. I'm not going to be home making cookies. Yeah, and people, which is like an eminently reasonable thing to say. And totally. that was a, that that's it, like a a turning point. Those for people, her. they they 
it, it, it is bizarre. I'll tell you one story about doing Barack Obama, which is I, I thought about the other day, which was when we went to the White House, we were um, Barack Obama also was going to be talking to YouTube stars mm-hmm. uh, like in the next day or two days after that. And they were telling me the story of a YouTube star, a very popular YouTube star that they thought they should invite to this event. Um, and then they looked at their uh, YouTube uh, videos and realized they could not invite and because of a certain video that this person did. And I said, um, well, that's too bad. And they said, well, that's just what it is. You have to vet these things. You have to yeah. watch every single thing they've ever done. They have someone watching every single thing they've ever done. So cut to now when there is no one vetting anyone <laughs> and it, and no, you find out none of this matters. Right. And where the president himself has a thousand career enders yes. on tape. Yeah. And you, and, and you kind of, part of me wishes like the Obama administration could go backwards and be a little looser, but I, I, I also know, and I could feel it while I was there, there's such a responsibility on him to be the first black president you can't fuck up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You, yeah, no, I know. You you can't do what Bill Clinton did. Yeah. You can't do – you certainly can't do what Trump's been doing. You can't fuck up or else people are going to say there should never be another black president again. Oh, I know. Well, you know, people joke that Bill Clinton was the first black president. I think Bill Clinton got to be blacker than Barack Obama yeah. did just in terms of what people would tolerate. Yeah, exactly. I mean certain people. Yeah. You know. So it's it's um, it's um certainly something where you look at uh, Hillary Clinton and you – and I know why she's overprocessed. You know, we just wanted to break through that. I understand. Which I was happy about. Which was a good, uh, I mean, kudos. Thank you. That's the whole point of this. Kudos to Scott. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my loves are growing? Well, we, I, I like to keep this uh, thing to an hour because I've been on your show yeah, and I know how that I can go. It. Yeah. Oh my God. Some days it's like, <laughs> bring a meal. Last time you did two hours. It was so two hours. So we could hours, edit it, it down to 90. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you were no, just, it's always, it's always fun. It's yeah, always fun. But I, but it is, but it, it is one I of the know. things. And I listen, and listening to podcasts, I'm good. I know my, I have a attention span thing. Yeah. An hour is about all I can do. And even then, sometimes I don't make it through an hour. Technically, podcasts should be 20 minutes because that's the average drive to someplace. You know what I mean? But at a certain point, I used to try to keep Comedy Bang Bang short. And then people would always be saying like, no, no, I listen to podcasts at work. I need more. I want more. Yes. Thank God for people with jobs that don't occupy (laughs) much of their brain. Yes. Well, so, but we really do. We should move on to the where are you going part of this. We talked a lot about where you've been in a, Mm -hmm. in a, in a really, uh, you know, frankly, you were an enigma to me up until now. (laughs) We've been friends for. I know, I know. But I was like, who is that guy? 15 years. Oh, my God. 
It's like he's like an abstract painting. Um, but what do you think? What do you think is going forward for you? I mean, either in your personal life, you're you and your beautiful wife, Kulop, who has just had that wonderful documentary yes. film, which everyone should check out. What's it called again? It's I'm called sorry. Origin Story. Yeah. Origin Story. It's on yeah. iTunes. Check it's it. on, it's, it's really, really great. It's on Amazon Prime. Is, Amazon uh, Prime is mainly Fuck. where people can watch Edit it. Edit that so free. that I say the right thing. <laughs> okay. Um. I think so. In career, I I just directed uh, a movie, which w- has been one of my big goals for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, ever since you know, watching that Monty Python movie, it's something just you like, wrote or yes, uh, okay. the Between Two Ferns movie. Okay, so that's coming out, and and I've just always wanted to be one of the comedians who like directed a movie. It's like yeah, very yeah. Spinal Tap or Albert Brooks, real life influenced. Um, so that's coming out. So at this point, I don't know what I've been working on that for two years every day. And now I just have my last day on it. So now I don't know what is happening. So, so you're done editing. It's all yeah, just ready to I, go out. It's all it's turned in. It's done. Wow. So, yeah, I don't know what's happening career wise other than I'd love to do more of that and mm-hmm. make just keep making stuff. You know, how I'd, does it feel when something like that's over and when you're like what what it. The day yeah. after, two days after, however many days when the sort of like, oh, thank God that's work is over. I kind of – this has been odd because I came from five years of a television show where, where we made 110 episodes and we are just cranking them out and constantly new ideas. It's been weird to work on the same 82 minutes for – what feels like an eternity mm-hmm. and to be constantly watching this same 82 minutes and I've, to be, and to be engaged by it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I still like it and I still like, I had to watch it front to back two times this week uh, because, you know, to finish the color correction and to finish the sound mix, you yeah, know, yeah. and you're watching it with people and they're all laughing and I'm just sitting there like analyzing it. But I, but I, I'm certainly not at the point where I'm like, Ooh, I wish I could have made different choices. Yeah. I, I think it's good. I think it's very funny. Um, people love it. So I think it's, I think, you know, I think it'll be great. Um, but it is weird. Yeah. It's weird to be done with it. And, and to, so many people are good about, you know, setting up their next project while they're working on this one. And this was so overwhelming for me. Yeah. I just – and plus doing all the podcast stuff. Like if I didn't have the podcast stuff, I could have set up my next project. But Yeah, yeah. So in terms of career, I don't know. I would love to be one of those guys like Mel Brooks who's just like keeps making shit until I'll, you know, till you, I'm yeah, – yeah, until yeah. I'm uh, passed away. Yeah, yeah. Which could be any time now. Oh, um, what's wait, what's going on? Something going on with me? About? Something something sad you've learned? <laughs> something scary? Something medical? <laughs> what if this is where I announced I was dying on your show? <laughs> I have an inoperable brain worm. <laughs> it's like Todd Glass announcing he was gay on Mark Maron's show. Oh, did he really? Yeah, I don't do it on your that. own show, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> like this is groundbreaking. Well, he's got, he wanted people to hear it. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Todd. Uh, pers- it was hanging there. I had to. Yeah. You know. Yeah, anytime you see something hanging there, you're you just, gotta you got to punch it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, personally, I think we're – you mentioned Kulop and her movie. I think we're at kind of a crossroads uh, as well in a way of if you've seen the movie, you know that we've been trying to have a kid for a while. 
And so we're in the middle of that. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, I say we're in the middle, but it's like we're in five years of that yeah, at yeah. this point. So that's been uh, a journey, but I hope I, I we're, we're hoping that that comes to a resolution in the next year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, at which point then, I don't know, man, because you're, you have kids who yeah. are like almost 18 and 13. Yeah, one's like leaving, right? Yes. One's off to college in a matter of weeks. So, which I don't even like. One of my coping mechanisms is uh, oh, if there's a train that's going to run over you, don't think about it until right before it's going to run over you. Because what's oh. the point of when it's a mile away and you're like, oh, I might get run over? Are you trying to spend time as much time yeah, as you can? We, and we stuff? are. Yeah. We are. But no, there's the basic, the basic thing that I, my baby is leaving. Yeah. My baby will be gone. Yeah. And he's because he's always going to be my baby. I mean, he's six foot two. He's a beautiful, beautiful man that just makes me so proud. And I love him so much. Uh, Yeah. But uh, I see him choking myself up. God damn it. He's going to be gone. um, But he's, yeah. But I mean, he's not going (sighs) to. I mean, you own a dog and they're not ever going to leave when they're, you know, like 18 <laughs> in dog years. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. see you later. Yeah. And, and they shit on the floor just house. like the kids do. <laughs> so, um, but, but I think that, that with, a, I have, you're one of the, the friends that I have that had kids and had a career simultaneously. Yeah. And I was always very, very worried about that. Like I had a friend who had kids relatively young and he was saying like, when when his kid was 10, he was saying, like, I just look back at the last 10 years like I'm just a very tired guy mm-hmm. trying to make comedy not very well. Yeah. You know, and so I was always very worried about that. Yeah. About how do you I mean, it's the joke question I would ask on Comedy Bang Bang, the TV show. How do you juggle work and family? But, you know, I just I, I was always like, I want to achieve things. You know, I, I have things in my career I want. I wanted yeah, that. Yeah. I wanted those Emmys. I wanted to make a movie, you know? Yeah. So I'm kind of at this place now where I'm like, well, can I now be selfless and have a career as well? I, I don't know. I mean, we're always able to hire assistants. Am I right? <laughs> and nannies. <laughs> yeah. Assistants and nannies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll help you out in showbiz. Yeah. But I don't know. That's, that's Well, I I mean, I'm not ju- I wouldn't say this if I didn't mean it, but I think you guys uh, I, I mean, I I would love to see you guys as parents cuz you're both really beautiful nurturing people uh with a lot of love in your hearts and I hope that that uh comes true, Aww, you know. Thank you, Andy. You're welcome. And I'm and it is like, yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, like it's it's there's things that like I wish uh, a lot of times I look at you know, there'll be a, a new comedy movie that I'll see a trailer for because I'm sure is not paying money to see those fucking <laughs> things. You ever see a comedy? They're the worst. Uh, <laughs> but I'll see a, a trailer and I'm like, I know every fucking person in that thing. You mean right. I couldn't have been the waiter or I couldn't have been the, the mm-hmm. you know, the deputy sheriff or I couldn't have been. And there's and there's part of me that's like, God damn it. What's been happening? And what's been happening is I've had a steady gig that's been in one place. I live 10 minutes from where I work. Right. And that's been What's going on for about <laughs> that's been going on about nine years from when my children were nine and four. Right. So from you know like pretty formative years. Yeah, you were you got to be. I've there. been home. 
Well, also, I've been home a lot, and I drive him to school every day. And I, you know, I mean, I've gotten to be a real dad while also being on television, which is a really—it's rare—a rare thing. And I really and don't you think before it, it happened, were you in this sort of existential dread about your career of like, I don't have a steady gig, and I need. What's, you know? No, absolutely. Well, and was, I, I, I seem to remember you being happy that you were getting a steady gig. At yes. The at the time, I was very heady. But, I, you know, I get bitchy about everything, yeah. uh, you know, and, and the grass always becomes greener. Yeah. And I'm always and I have a short attention span. I, you know, I do get like, well, this is great. I love this thing and I love everybody here, but I'm antsy. I want to move on. And and I but I also was aware and there is. There is the balance. There is the yin and the yang of like where, yeah, you can have a movie career, but you're not going to be home. Yeah. And there were times like I, I, one time it was right before the writer strike. I got a job in a movie in New Zealand and they were like, you got it. You know, you got to decide right now is a movie called uh, Aliens in the Attic. Oh, yeah. And I went away. I went away for six weeks because it all happened so fast. And I had to take, which is another story. But it happened where like on Friday they said. You've got the job. Not just you've got the job. But you got to be there on Monday. You got the job, but yeah, you got to leave on Tuesday for what could be three months. And fuck you if if that's a problem. And I'm like, well, I got to take this job because it's the writer's strike. Everything stopped. But I was gone for six weeks. I I was away from my my family for six weeks. It was terrible. It was a terrible mistake. And if I had to do it again, I would have dragged him with me and put my son in school in New Zealand, in Auckland or whatever. Uh, Because that just... Uh, that and that was that was a real turning point for me to know like oh no I'm not going to yeah. be the guy that goes to Prague for three weeks. Uh, I you think know. I look at a lot of times I look at movie stars and how they constantly even if they have children they're constantly getting divorced. Yeah, and I kind of go. I think you know it's it's very rare to be one of the top ten bankable movie stars in the world, but I think there is a price that goes along yeah, with that. You absolutely. Know? And so I think there's something to that. I mean, I, w- I would say that the only times that I think that Kulop and I have ever had true difficulties were when I, w- I basically had taken too much work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you just, there's just something about not being next to the person. Yeah. You know what I mean? And not not being able to just connect even like in a physical proximity, mm-hmm. you know? So so I I think, you know, if something like that were to happen of like, hey, you got to go move somewhere for whatever amount of time, I think it's the sensible thing to do if you want to keep your relationship going is to bring all the people with you. Yeah. If you Which, can. yeah, exactly. But it, that's predicated on the notion that everybody's portable based on yeah. what your and, life is and everyone's all children are okay with like upending their yeah. lives, and and yeah. and, and then Kulop's okay with dropping her life here and yeah. going to wherever you might. Well, that's the other going. thing is is like you know she's got her own career going, yeah, so yeah. like a child. I mean, it's definitely almost more impactful on her career oh, than yeah. it is Not mine. More so. than almost it one hundred percent. Yeah, so I shouldn't 100%. even be like as selfishly thinking about how's it going to affect my career as much as I should be thinking What's, about her. It's nobody here. Nobody hears this. <laughs> I mean, for sure, Kulop doesn't listen to this. Um, all right. Well, we're getting near the end here. Uh, I, I think the notion of, of a, a balance between the sort of personal gratification of a fulfilling work career and the, you know, sort of deeper, I, and I personally think deeper, uh, gratification of, of a family and, and creating a home it's a careful thing. I mean, that's sort of one right. thing you've learned. Is there? Well, a, I mean, you know, one thing is, is like, what is it all for? 
you know, like yeah. I've gotten to do these cool things and it makes me feel good of like, oh, I've always wanted to achieve these things. And if I didn't achieve them, I think I probably would have felt bad. Yeah. You know, so I, that's great. But in a way, it also is like, it's the old questions of what, what is it all? <laughs> what's, mm-hmm. what's the fucking point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, of like, you know, I when when you hear Rudy Giuliani say like, I don't care about legacy because I'll be dead. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. it's like he's just fucking going to be the worst asshole yeah. because he's only got five more years here on this earth and he just wants to fucking live his life during it. You right, know? right. Um, so what good is a legacy? It's more about the relationships that you have. Probably, no. I guess. I very – <laughs> Early on, there was a, I mean, like we're talking like 1994 or something. There was a profile on Conan in which they asked me questions about him. And I love saying exactly what I want to say. Uh, so <laughs> they asked me sort of like, you know, how do you, you know, he's your friend and you care about him. And how do you, you know, this, and it was the whole point of the article is like, what a rough ride it's been for him, you know. and it's, For Conan? Well, I mean, in the beginning. Oh, okay. In the beginning, no, we were, we were, you know, from like the oh, first. Ra- ratings were, oh, ratings. Yeah, yeah. Oh, just I, thought like, you, I like, thought you meant in his, his career. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, right I'm, from that's Harvard what I'm saying. Like, no, I'm saying in 1994, okay, okay. it was like he started this show and everybody shit on it and everybody hated on it. And the right, network right. was terrible. And the network was pretty shitty to us for the right. first couple of years. It wasn't until David Letterman came on and was like, this Validated is a great David. show. Yeah. I can't believe how much comedy you guys do. And then it was kind of, that was there it just was in the air like that guy says we're good so right. how can you really think we're shitty right but in this article that they wrote about him they asked me about like how i felt he was handling it and i said well i just hope i said something along the lines of like i hope that he realizes how sort of passing all of this is and how sort of fleeting all of this is and how sort of ultimately inconsequential and silly all this is because you know at the in 1994 it's like can you remember a talk show kerfuffle from five years prior to that right you know no so (laughs) and i just told him i just said and i said something along the lines of like because having met david hasselhoff 12 times does not keep the ghosts away when you're laying in that nursing home bed (laughs) (laughs) And, and i got a call from him like early one morning saying my friend, he goes, because uh, he didn't read the article. He said, my friend read that quote to me and said that it chilled him. <laughs> it chilled him. And I was like, well, good. Good. Because it's true. Yeah. You know. I mean, conversely, though, I the movie's about to come out. And I I was thinking the other day because, you know, once once it wrapped up, I was like suddenly feeling very just worried about my career. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. And like, oh, shit, have I fucked myself, you know, working two years and disappearing basically for two years to do this one thing. But I just had to remind myself, like, of the kid who wanted to do it. Yeah. To be present, at least, yeah. when, it, when it comes out. Yeah. And to be And to not be so much, like, about the future and all that kind of stuff. So because, and because, you know, we don't have kids right now, so I can't like take them to it and go, look, daddy yeah, made a look movie. What daddy did. But I mean, honestly, when you take your kids and say, look what daddy did, they don't give a shit. Anyway, right. Yeah. You know? Look, Jimmy Pardo's kid came to it and loved it. I mean, so, but, but also it's I like, feel like he's do my you kid really anyway. want your kids to be fans? That's another question. <laughs> like, no, nah, that's okay. You know? Yeah. Uh, I have, I have a, uh, a couple of friends who have two kids and the daughter is exactly like the mom and the kid is exactly like the dad. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's so, adorable yeah 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 uh and i don't think the kids would even 
acknowledge I that or whatever, that, yeah. but they are so alike that yeah. I, I just, I think it's so funny. Yeah, yeah. And I love it. But yeah, I, I, I want to get there. I know Cool Up and I, we definitely want to get there. And I'll be an old dad, which I think is like, you know, not the, not the greatest. That's okay. I don't know. I'm just, it's okay. I'll be it's physically okay. unable to do the you, job. No, that's not true. That's not true. I think, I know old dads and I think it keeps them young. Yeah, okay. I know old dads and I know older moms and I think it keeps them young. I, I think being you know around, older moms. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, older first moms or moms. You're on oldermoms.com as yeah, well as yeah, older moms, older first moms.com. I actually am, I own oldermoms.com and that's why I'm bringing it up. Uh, <laughs> no, I think, I think that kids keep you young. I think okay. they really do. I think that they have a, I mean, they're, a, they're the biggest, most work because they're the most important thing, mm-hmm. but they, uh, I think that they do tend to keep you young because you're that much closer to that life force, you know, that, right. that, that just, that you want to suck out of them. No, no, no. That you want to nurture that you right. want to, you know, I mean, you know, yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, it's like, uh, uh, to put it in show business terms, it's like a, a development deal with 18 steps, you know, <laughs> to, to put it in terms that we yeah, understand, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. it's like a multi-picture deal that a we have. development deal that, that just lasts itself. a long time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that can fall downstairs. <laughs> I've always wanted one of those. <laughs> well, I, uh, one of my few philosophical uh, standpoints is I am a, a devout relativist, and I have found comparing myself to other people to be an inc- incredibly useful things oh. when applied to different things, such as career, mm-hmm. like very getting into show business. It's so daunting. How the fuck do you make money in show business? How can you make a living at this? And I remember specifically being out here and seeing all of this houses and businesses and thinking so much of this is show business. It's a, it's an industry. There's gotta be a place for me. And, and also so much of, look, if that fucking guy can do it, <laughs> I sure as fuck can't, you yeah. know, that, that, w- and I, subs- I, yeah, you can subside on that yeah. in your early twenties. And I think like it, to, just to speak to you feeling a little nervous about, you know, devoting yourself to the direction of this film and what that does to you. It's not just the fact that the, it's the, the child that you were that had the dream of this. It's all the people that have attempted to do it, too. And all the people that are out there that would that would love to direct right. a film. You know, I mean, it's it can it can be very easy to look at what you don't have. Yes. With like friends who have. And and it's all just like weird luck sometimes. Mm-hmm. In addition mm-hmm. to talent, I yeah. mean, I I think everything is a is a combination of talent, but it's so much of it is luck that and, it's, and circumstance just yeah, being somewhere. Yeah, that you just kind of gotta like look down and go. I don't care that I'm not. There are certain things. Yes, I will never achieve that I wanted to achieve when I was young. But God, I had a TV show for five years, which is fucking insane. I know, I know. And I probably will never have another television show. Mm -hmm. I'm not like one of those people who's like, all right, what's next on my TV slate? It's like, I'm probably never going to have another one. And I got to direct a movie and who knows if I'll ever get to direct another one. But it's like, I got to do these things. I'm always tickled by people uh, when they try and insult me on the internet, on Twitter or something, where they say something like, you and your failed shows. And I'm like, oh, you mean the three network shows that I was the fucking star of? Yeah, Yeah, what a loser. (laughs) When when people say like, oh yeah, Comedy Bang Bang was canceled. I mean, I go, after 110 episodes? (laughs) Yeah, way to go, asshole. Like, what shows do you... Do you only like The Simpsons in 60 right, Minutes? Right. Do you only like Guiding Light? <laughs> you know, the Bold what? and the Beautiful? Yeah, yeah. No, like, Bonanza, that was a show. No, got Gunsmoker. Got canceled after 20, 20 <laughs> fucking years. Yep. All right, well, this has really been... Uh, 
the best time I've ever had with you, frankly. Oh, boy. Usually You've it's, been to it's parties a little, at my house. I, it's a bummer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. that was just to sort of look yeah. through your you stuff. You came and watched the Super Bowl at my Try house, it. and I, did, I, made, I you, made you lunch. I did. All right. I actually just, uh, your house was one of my first sort of post-announcement of my getting a divorce outings. Yes. And it was, it was just, I... I made a joke afterwards because I had to talk to so many friends that I hadn't really talked to yeah. about. It was it. your coming out party, coming out as a divorced man. A party. little bit. I mean, not yeah. divorced yet, but I like I made a joke to a friend of mine the next day about going to dinner, and I told him I said like, "Hey, I just last night I was workshopping my one man show. I'm getting a divorce, <laughs> and I think I could real now that I've got it worked out. You know, having, <laughs> right, yeah. having repeated having road 12, tested it. <laughs> twelve times to my friends at your house. So. Oh boy. Um, and you listen, people out there, if you ever get a chance to go to Scott's house, it is lovely. Come on by. Yeah, you got it. You got to take an Uber though. It's, yeah, uh, the parking is. We're taking up. all comers though. Anyone who ever wants to come by, just go, ask me for the address. Go right ahead. <laughs> All right. Thanks, buddy. I really uh, I love you, Scott. This is love great. You, buddy. I this really is, enjoyed uh, this. Uh, I'm glad. I'm thank glad. you for having me. And as thank well. you for all your help getting this one off the ground. My pleasure. And uh, and thank you out there for listening to the three questions. Uh, we will be back next week with someone far less interesting, I'm sure. I got a big, big love for you. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco and Earwolf production. It's produced by me, Kevin Bartelt, executive produced by Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Chris Bannon and Colin Anderson at Earwolf. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, associate produced by Jen Samples and Golitsa Hayek, and engineered by Will Beckton. And if you haven't already, make sure to rate and review The Three Questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at tmobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com.